0: So we're continuing our series this morning in the book of 1 Peter. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there with me. If not, there should be one on your chair or the chair next to you. If you don't own a Bible, you're free to take that one with you as our gift to you. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5, which will be on page 1016, 1016 on the Bibles under your chairs. This week we're actually concluding our series in the book of 1st Peter. This is our first sermon series that we've gone through together as a new congregation, so that's exciting. Next week we'll be beginning a new series on Advent as we look forward to the Christmas season, the time of the year when we celebrate the birth of Christ. But today we're continuing our series in 1st Peter, and what's been happening in 1st Peter over the last few weeks is Peter's been talking about suffering or difficulty. Uh, the reality that we, when we live in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be, difficult things come into our lives. Difficult things tend to find us. And he's told us how to prepare for the future if we know that suffering is coming. He's told us how to handle suffering whenever it comes into our lives. And this week what he's going to do is he's going to address a common experience we have and a temptation we face when suffering happens. When difficulty and suffering come into your life, you feel low And that makes sense, reasonably so. You're going through something difficult and you feel low. And there's a desire to be made high, to be lifted up out of your lowly state. And what this passage is going to call that is exaltation, a desire to be exalted. And that's not totally off base, although we're going to see it's much different than the way we normally think about it. See, the way we normally think about it and the problem with the way we normally go about being exalted is that the things we hope will lift us up when we get them, they're often not as good as we think they would be. We, we get there and we realize, oh, this is it. Like It, it should be better. Uh, and they don't last. They, they lift you up for a little bit, but they don't keep you there. And they tend to, to let you down. On top of that, when we have a desire to be exalted, it can make us very self-focused. So it can put a strain on our relationships with other people and our relationship with God because we're so consumed with ourselves and how we can be made much of. So, when we're in this lowly position, how can we be exalted? How can we be lifted high in such a way that it is as good as we hope it is? That it does last and that instead of putting a strain on our relationships with other people and with God, it actually enhances those relationships. That's the question that Peter is going to answer for us today. And the answer we're going to see in this passage is to live humbly so that God will exalt you. Live humbly so God will exalt you. And this humble living comes out in two primary ways. It comes out in the way we relate to one another, the way we relate to other people, kind of the horizontal relationship. And it comes out in the way we relate to God. So we're going to talk today about what it means to live humbly towards one another, towards people, and what it means to live humbly towards God. So look with me in First Peter chapter 5. I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's a short one, so don't be scared. firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So we're beginning in this passage with considering living humbly towards other people. And Peter begins by addressing elders and those who are younger, addressing different kinds of people in the church. But in verse 5, he gives this command that's for all of us. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility toward one another. In the way we relate to one another, the, the character value that should hang over all of that is humility. Now, humility is a word that if you've been around church much, we use a good bit, or we should at least, because it is a biblical value and it's and central to what it means to live life as a Christian. But it's one that we sometimes don't define very well, so we have weird ideas about what humility is. To be humble doesn't mean to be soft-spoken or passive or quiet. And it doesn't mean what we usually think it means, which is self-deprecating, always kind of putting yourself down and have a very low view of yourself. C.S. Lewis was a Christian in the 1950s in England, and he defined humility at, or he described humility as not thinking more of yourself or thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So it's not thinking more of yourself or thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So a kind of shorthand that we can use for that is humility is self-forgetfulness. It's just not being so occupied with me. So when you relate to other people, the concerns that humility raises are, who is this person? What are they like? What are their needs? What would a loving response to them look like in this situation? And if that's humility, the opposite of humility is what the Bible calls pride. And if humility is self-forgetfulness, you can think of pride as self-preoccupation or self-focus. It's this, when relating to others, what pride does is its fundamental questions are, who am I? What about me? Are my needs being met in this moment? How is this person viewing me? Am I being treated the way that I'm supposed to be treated? And you can see how a prideful approach towards other people can look like arrogance or it can look like self-deprecating. So arrogance is probably what most of us think of when we hear the word pride. When, someone, when a prideful person relates to another person, the things that they're thinking of are, how can I feel better about myself in relation to this other person? So I'm going to notice and try to pick out all the things that are wrong with this person that I'm interacting with. So, oh, they're not as good looking as I am, or I make more money than they do, or I'm smarter than they are, or I'm cooler than they are. And their presence helps me bolster my self-esteem. That's what I try to do when I relate to them. That's how a prideful person relates to other people. And the interesting thing is that can make you want to be closer friends with them or make you want to get farther away from them. So you can think, well, this person makes me feel better about myself when I'm around them, so I always want to be around them. Or they're not cool enough. They have to kind of get on my level before I'll hang out with them and therefore I don't spend time with them. That's the arrogant person, right? And so, okay, we all know that person's prideful. But actually, the self-deprecating person can be just as focused on themselves. So it looks more like, man, why aren't I as cool as they are? Or, man, I wish I made as much money as they did. Or their stuff is so much cooler than mine. Or they're so much better at this job than I am. And it's still all about how do I compare? And again, it's... Maybe I want to hang out with them all the time now because they're cool, and if I'm around them, maybe some of it will rub off on me and I can be cool too. Or it's a disdain, you know, because they have everything I wish that I was. I don't ever want to be around them, and I don't like people like that. In either case, pride is this self-focus. And pride tends to come very naturally to us. If you've related to other people, you've probably often felt some of the very things that I've just been describing. I know that I have. And so what Peter commands us to do is to clothe ourselves with humility. Clothing actually isn't natural, right? When you come out of the womb, you're not wearing anything. That's why we call it a birthday suit, right? So think of pride as, pride is our birthday suit. Uh, You you come out self-focused. You come out thinking of yourself. And that's why Peter has to tell us, put something else on. Uh, Cover up, for crying out loud. Your pride is like, really obvious right now. And so clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another because it's not the most natural thing. And just as with any kind of clothing, the kind of clothes you wear are going to be different depending on who you are. And so in this passage, humility is going to take on a different form for elders than it does for those who are younger. So let's rewind a little bit and see what does humility look like for someone who's an elder and what does some humility look like for someone who is younger. Um, so he starts back in verse 1 with the elders. Now, elders is another word that we probably need to take a little bit of time to define what an elder is. It doesn't just mean an older person in the Bible. It actually refers to an office within the church. And we can get some hints into what an elder is by what elders are commanded to do in this passage. So in verse 2, we see that the elders are commanded to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So elders have a leadership-type role. They're called into a shepherding position. And the flock of God is kind of an analogy that's used to describe the church in the Bible. And as we are followers of Jesus, we're described as sheep, uh, part of Jesus' flock. And so shepherds are people that Jesus has given a position of leadership over the church, and they are to exercise oversight. But they don't do so as the ultimate leader. Verse 4 says there is a chief shepherd. So Jesus is the chief shepherd of the flock. But it's Jesus' will that the flock would be led and governed here on earth by under-shepherds, some other guys that he puts in place to lead and exercise oversight. And then the one other thing we can see in this passage is that the elders are plural. There's multiple of them in each church. So combining what we know in this passage from what we know in other passages of Scripture, we can define an elder or elders as a group of men who take primary responsibility for leading the church in a God glorifying direction. Now, I slipped the word men in there, and you may have questions about that that may have taken you aback. We do at City Light affirm the biblical teaching that elder is the one office of the church that is restricted to men. And if you have questions about that, they're probably really important and good questions. And I want you to feel the freedom to ask those and to process those with us here. I would love to talk to you more about them, because I do think there are some really important issues that come up when we talk about this idea of only men being in this role. Um, I don't have time to go into it in this sermon, because as you'll see, it's not the main point of this passage. But if you do have questions about it, I want you to know they're important, and we'd love to talk to you about them. So I'll be up here after the service. Um, You can write it on a Connect card, and we'd love to connect with you more on it. But for now, elders are in this position of spiritual leadership. And so what he calls them to is humble leadership, How can elders be self-forgetful in the way that they treat the people that they're called to lead in the church? Well, the first thing we see is that they are to exercise oversight. Ironically, pride and self-focus can actually kill the desire to lead. Because if you're in a position of leadership and you look at yourself, what are you going to see? You're going to see your weaknesses. You're going to see, gosh, I could never do this. You know, like, you want me to care for the souls of other people and help them follow Jesus? I'm having a hard enough time following Jesus myself. You want me to lead others? So pride says, I don't want to exercise oversight. It can actually just reinforce a passive kind of hopefully someone else does it approach. But what humility does is it looks at others, right? It focuses on other people. And when humility looks out at the church, it sees sheep, And what do sheep need? Sheep need shepherds. And so humility looks out and says, these sheep need to be shepherded. And Jesus has set up the church in such a way that under his leadership, someone else is called to be in this leadership role. So I wonder if there are some of you here today that God is calling towards eldership or that God is calling into some other spiritual leadership position in the church. But because you're so focused on yourself, you haven't been willing to step into it. Humble leadership looks at the people, looks at the opportunity to shepherd and to care for them under Jesus' leadership, and says, okay, even though I'm imperfect, the chief shepherd can use me. So it, it does lead, but it can lead in an arrogant, prideful way, and that's what the next few commands are focused on. So if you do move into this position of leadership, Peter says to do it not under compulsion, but willingly. So you don't lead in the church because it's what mom and dad really want you to do. And they'd be really proud of you if you were in a leadership role. You don't even lead in the church because the pastor told you how important it was. And he really leaned on you and said, you know, we really need someone to fill this role. And if you don't do it, who will? You know, and that kind of... I hope we don't do that here, but if we do, just tell me. Um, But don't do it for that reason, okay? He's saying not under compulsion, not because someone's making you do it, but willingly as God would have you. The idea is do it because you want to. And want to because God wants you to. You should have a sense of this is actually some, a desire that God's giving me right now to shepherd and to be in this position of spiritual leadership. So, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So, you don't lead. Pride, when it sees a leadership opportunity, asks, What can I get out of this? How will this benefit me? So the most obvious example is some leadership roles you get paid for. I'm I'm an employee of City Light Church, and I do get a paycheck. Um, There there are leadership roles where that happens. But on top of that, there could be other benefits that you're looking for. You may think, when I'm in a leadership role, people will look up to me they'll respect me. It gives me a sense of status, a title, value. Um, If I can confess to you guys, that's one of the main ways that I struggle in my leadership is I think when I'm a leader and when people are looking to me, then I'll feel whole, I'll feel satisfied, because I'll feel respected and admired. Uh, A a confession I can make is, I like the fact that I'm up front right now, and that you all are looking at me and listening. I like the fact that this week on Facebook, whoever runs our City Light Church Facebook page is going to post a quote and stick my name at the end, and like three of you might like it, you know? Um, Some part of me really likes the attention. And I hate that part of me, okay? That's the prideful, self-focused part of me that says, what can I get out of it? And what happens when you're in it for shameful gain is you don't lead eagerly. You don't say, I want to do this. How can I serve people? You say, how can I do it in such a way that I get what I want out of it? You say, how can I do it so that I get paid? How can I do it so that I can get attention? And it totally cuts off your ability to love people in the role that you're in. So not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And then lastly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Pride looks at leadership and says, aha, now I have power. I can make people do what I want them to do. It domineers over them. It says, hey, you better do this or I'm cutting your paycheck. Hey, you better do this or I'm kicking you off the team. So it's a lot of, hey, now let's remember who's the pastor here and who's the, you know, who's the boss here and who's the employee and that kind of conversation. And, you know, I can cut your benefits and, um, and therefore now you have to listen to me as opposed to humble leadership, looks at you and says, the best thing for you, actually, is going to be to see how Jesus is working in my life, to be an example to this person that you're leading. And so if you want to be a leader, the first question you have to ask is, am I living in such a way that it's an example I would actually want others to follow? Not that you're living perfectly, because none of you are going to do that, and you don't want anyone to follow your example of faking like you're perfect. That's a bad example to follow. But is it an example of a person who's living a repenting growing life in their relationship with Christ. That's what humble leadership looks like. And then he continues in verse 5 to address those who are younger. So that's kind of what the clothing of a leader looks like, what humble clothes look like if a, if a leader clothes themselves with humility. But for those who are younger, it does look different. Now, in a sense, everyone is called to be subject to the elders. So why does he single out in verse 5 those who are younger? Because elders have this role in the church, everyone's called to submit to them. Well, I think it's because Peter knows, like all of us kind of know, that when you're younger, you tend to have a harder time submitting to people. You tend to think that you you know it all, kind of, and and that we have things figured out. I mean, we are the general—City Light's a young church, right? As a church, we're only four years old. This is our ninth Sunday as a new congregation, and the average age of our church is probably like 25, So we are a young church with a lot of young people in our church, and we are the generation of people who think we know everything. We're the people who will go to a doctor, and the doctor will give you a diagnosis on what's wrong with you, and you'll be like, wait a second. I read this article online, and I think I really know what's wrong with me. Never mind the fact that you killed yourself for 12 years to get to the point that you're at and worked crazy hours and sleepless nights to get this certification. I have an internet connection. And I can read an article, and I'll tell you what's wrong with me and what medication I need and and what the procedure from here is going to be. Or maybe a little closer to home, why can't Chip Kelly run DeMarco Murray up the middle, you know? (laughs) What is the idea with this ongoing jet sweep option? Why doesn't he play Ryan Matthews more when he's healthy? Why would you get rid of Jeremy Macklin and Deshaun Jackson and replace them with Riley Cooper and Josh Huff, you know, like... Chip Kelly, never mind that you were like a perennial powerhouse in college football, that in the first two seasons in the NFL, you went to the playoffs and won 10 games. I've got like five years of Madden under my belt, you know? Like, I, I logged a lot of hours in that video game, and I think if I was in your shoes, I could do your job better. Really? We, we just think we know better. We, we always think we do. And what Peter's saying is that that's how we often respond to church leadership, Now, I'm thankful to say that in a lot of ways, I feel like we got to pass on this one because you guys are some of the easiest people to lead around. I talk to friends of mine who are pastors of other churches, and they talk about like, yeah, I got this member who's just always bringing up this problem, and they always want to fight me on this, and every time I try to do something, it's like this uphill battle. And you guys, you know, we started this congregation. We were going to launch it in January. It's like, hey, what do you guys think of October? And it's like, awesome, let's do it, you know? We bring up ideas, like, hey, we were going to do this, but it didn't work, so let's try this next time. And you're like, okay, cool, like, how do we do it, you know? You guys are really a blessing to get to lead. I feel like when we have ideas as elders and something that we feel like God's leading us to, the normal response is, cool, let's do it. How can I help? How can I serve? So I just want to thank you guys for really doing a good job, though you're younger, of being subject to elders who actually aren't even that much older than you, you know? Some of you in here are probably older than I am, so... Um, I, I really appreciate that. But we're not perfect, right? All of us face this temptation that when church leadership has an idea, maybe it's your city group leader comes to your city group and says, hey, this is where we feel like God's leading us as a group. And what pride does in those situations is it looks at yourself and it says, well, wait a second, why wasn't I asked? What about me? What? No, 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 I don't, I, I don't like that. I don't think that's a good idea. And it, there's this automatic pushback of, well, you're in a position of authority and you're going to tell me what to do. And what humility does is it looks at the other person. It looks at an elder, and it says, you're an elder. God's put you here in a position of authority over me. How can I respectfully obey the things that you're talking about? It looks at a city group leader and says, okay, you have a position of authority right now. How can I be responsive to what's happening? doesn't mean you don't talk to them. It doesn't mean you don't raise objections. They need your help. I need your help. And you guys do a really good job of that. But you do it in a respectful way. You do it in a way that acknowledges that you have a role here that I don't have right now. I'm not the leader in this relationship. That's what humble clothing looks like for those who are younger. The birthday suit feels natural, okay? Pride is going to come naturally, and self-focus is going to come naturally. But in verse 5, he says that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. The problem is, for as natural as this stuff comes, God opposes it. And why would that be? It's because our approach to other people... And how humble we are towards them or how self-focused we are is ultimately a reflection of our relationship with God. The humility we show with others comes out of the humility we show towards God. It's not going to work to say, well, I'll just try to always focus on other people. It starts with our relationship with God himself. And so that's the next thing we're going to talk about. What is humble living towards God? Look at verse 6 with me. Humble yourselves, therefore... Under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Self focus, pride looks at self. Humility looks at someone else, forgets self. When humility looks at God, when you look at Him, what do you see? This passage says you see a mighty hand. When you look at God, that's where humility begins. Because you see, He's actually the one who is powerful. He's actually the one who has all glory, who has all power, who has all honor, who has all dominion. He is at the center of the universe. Everything is about him. And therefore, guess who it's not about? It's not about me. It's not about me. Now, this image of the mighty hand of God appears throughout the Bible. And in other parts of the Bible, it's this hand of God is a picture of his power. So that's why he calls it a mighty hand. So there's times in the Bible where when God is opposing someone in a, in a military-type context, they'll say they lost the battle because God's hand was against them. Uh, Psalm 32 gives us a really poignant example of this. It's going to be up on the board um, behind me here on the projector. This is uh, someone writing who knows God, but who's feeling the weight of their disobedience to God. They know they've put themselves at the center instead of putting God at the center. And therefore, they feel a sense of God's opposition. And this is how they describe it in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. It says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He says, Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. There's this sense that um, when we do wrong, when we know that we're guilty, when we know that we haven't built our lives on God, when we've actually devoted ourselves to something else, that the hand of God is heavy upon us. We feel the weight of it. Um, And many times when we think of God's power, this is all we really think of. You think God has this mighty hand and it could strike me, It, it could hurt me, it could punish me if I wrong him. But if that's all you know about God's power, if that's all you know about God's mighty hand, that it can punish you, that it can hurt you, then you'll never actually become a humble person. What you'll probably become is a religious person. You'll probably say, ah, God's just and God punishes sin and God punishes wrongdoing, so how can I make sure that he never punishes me? I'll just make sure I always do all the right things. I'll make sure there's a thing at church, I'm there. There's You say I should read my Bible every day, I'll read my Bible every day. You say that I should serve at a homeless shelter, I'll serve at a homeless shelter. You say I shouldn't swear, I'll never swear. You say I shouldn't go to bars, I shouldn't do that. And so on and so forth. Whatever it takes to get out from under God's mighty hand, to get away from it, because I don't want to experience the punishment. And that's why religious people can be some of the proudest people around. Because in every interaction, religious people have to convince themselves that they're righteous. So when they're relating to someone else, you have to see all the things they're doing wrong so that you can feel better. So you can say, well, at least I'm not as sinful as they are. You know, I, I don't drink like they do, or I don't um, hoard my money like they do, and I don't have a big house like they do. And you find all these ways to be judgmental towards the people around you because you're so afraid of God's mighty hand and you have to convince yourself that I'm righteous and that I'll never experience it. And who are you focused on the whole time? It's still you. It's still total self-focus. Religion will not free you from pride. In fact, it often just reinforces it. To humble yourself under, under God's mighty hand, instead of running away from it, you have to know that God's power, that God's mighty hand can do more than punish. It can do something else. And that's exactly what this passage says. Says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that what? So that at the proper time he may exalt you. God's mighty hand not only punishes, it lifts up. It exalts. When I hear this, I can't help but think of the hundred terrible king kong movies that have come out over the last few years and you know or just the movie with like the big ape that you know escapes from the zoo and then he makes friends or whatever and but there's always one point i, I feel bad even using it as an illustration because i don't think there's a good movie that's been done you know in this way but um there's always a scene in the movie where the ape is angry with someone or he's being shot at unjustly and he so he wipes that you know he, he takes his big hand and he wipes out a whole bunch of humans and uh Inevitably, at a later point in the movie or, you know, a different point in the movie, there's also a scene where he has the one person who was kind to him. You know, it was the mom who took care of him when he was a baby monkey or, um, you know, the the lady who's come into the zoo and has visited him. and, And what does he do? There's always a scene where you see the little human in his hand and he lifts them up. He literally lifts them away from the danger. And what this passage is saying is that God's mighty hand, yes, it's powerful. It can destroy. But for the humble... For those who come to God with nothing, for those who don't come to God with a list of all the good things they've done, with their own righteousness, with a focus on themselves and something to offer God, for those who come to Him with nothing, those are the people that God exalts. Those are the people that God lifts up. And you have to know this if you're really going to forget yourself. How are you going to say, I don't matter? Take me out of the equation. In my relationship with people, I don't need anything from you. In my relationship with God, I'm not bringing anything to you. I don't have any righteousness to give you. Unless you know that those are the people that God exalts, that you will be lifted up by him. It doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't make sense that people who have nothing would be exalted because we look around our world, and it's just not the way most of life works. The athlete is exalted because he has skills because he's good at something, because he won the game, or because he you know, made the shot. The artist is exalted, the, the, the most famous artist is exalted because they've produced great artwork, and so people pay attention to them. Um, the musician is exalted because they produced a great piece of music, and people pay attention. The person is promoted in your workplace because they've done a good job. And so we think, I can't forget myself. I have to make sure I have something to offer. I have to make sure I have something to give to people so that they'll like me. And I have to make sure that I have something to give to God so that He'll like me. So I can't admit that I'm wrong. I can't confess sin. I can't view myself as less than righteous. I have to present the best version of myself to people and to God, or else I won't be exalted. And this just flips it on its head. It says that the exaltation is for those who have nothing, for those who come to God with nothing, for the humble. So let's get a little better picture of what this exaltation is. Um, In verse 4, it says, The chief shepherd, when he appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's why Peter tells this to the elders. He knows you can't be humble unless you know you've got an unfading crown of glory coming for you. In verse 10, he says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Whatever you lose through humility, whatever you give up, whatever you sacrifice, whatever it costs you to forget yourself, to stop trying to get something out of every interaction, to stop trying to force God to give you blessing by being so obedient to him. He says, God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's the exaltation that's coming for you. And it's eternal glory in Christ. It's an unfading crown of glory. Unlike all the other things that you think will lift you high, all the other things that you think will give you exaltation, it lasts. It's eternal. It's an unfading crown of glory. And it's not from people. It's not from a job. It's not from a spouse. It's from God himself who gives you this eternal glory. And he gives it to people who haven't earned it, who don't have anything to offer him. How can he do that? Verse 10 tells us, This important phrase that you have to catch here. It says, He's called us to His eternal glory in Christ. This eternal glory, this exalting, this being lifted high, it's found somewhere. It's found in Christ. You can be exalted even though you have nothing, even though you haven't earned it, because Jesus earned it for you. Because when Jesus was on earth, He was the human, He was the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd who exercised oversight, but not under compulsion. He did it willingly. He didn't have to. Jesus didn't have to come to earth and to shepherd us, but he did it willingly. Not for shameful gain. What does Jesus get out of us? What does he get out of his time on earth? Ultimately, he's crucified. That's the reward for his suffering. And yet he does it. Not domineering over those in his charge, but being examples to the flock. He doesn't come to earth saying, you better obey or I'll zap you. He comes to earth saying, you haven't obeyed, therefore I'll die for you. Therefore, I'll take the condemnation in your place. And because Jesus humbled himself in this way, he was exalted. Because Jesus suffered for my sins and for yours, he was risen from the dead and given glory and given this name that is above every name that we read about earlier. Jesus has the glory because he suffered because he was humble. And that's why, although we have nothing, we also can be exalted in him, if we've trusted in him and if we are with him. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you can be exalted one day as well. If you forget yourself and come to God with nothing, one day you will be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established in him. And therefore, you can just forget yourself. You can come to God with nothing. And in order to come to Jesus, that's all it takes. Tim Keller, this pastor in New York, says, in in order to come to Jesus, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. If you have need, if you know you're needy, if you know you have nothing, you can come to Jesus today. And he will exalt you at the proper time. We'll conclude by just looking at what does humble living toward God look like. In verse 7, it looks like, casting all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. When you look into your future, pride says, I have to be exalted now, and only I can be trusted to make sure it happens. So you look at the things that may or may not happen, and here's, what, here's the problem you run into. You realize you're not actually in control of your life. And so you get anxious, you get worried. Because what if it doesn't happen? What if the exaltation's not there? And he, Peter says, what you do in that moment is you cast your anxiety on him. This is a nebulous sounding thing, casting all your anxieties on him. But what he's actually saying is pretty simple. He's saying, you pray. There's something you're concerned about with your future. To cast your anxiety on God is to ask him to do it. And then you obey whatever the thing he's telling you to do is. Pray and obey. They rhyme. You know, I I didn't really try that. In fact, I try not to do that stuff sometimes because it sounds cheesy, but they they, pray and obey, okay? You can can remember that. Um, So so you pray, you ask God to do it, and then you obey the thing that he's telling you to do. So to cast your anxiety on God, many of you are anxious about what you're going to do with your life. You don't know where you're going to end up living. You don't know if you're going to get a job for all the hard work that you're doing. You don't know if the job you're in is the one that you really want. What do you do with that anxiety? Start by praying cast that anxiety on him and say, God, would you lead me into the job that you want me to have? Would you provide for me a job where I can use the gifts and use the training that I'm giving? Would you enable me to be able to support myself and to support a family and to be able to give to those who are in need? Ask him for it. And then obey the things he has told you to do. He hasn't told you to spend 12 hours a day on job websites finding the perfect job. He hasn't told you to manipulate situations so that you always look good, so that you get the promotion, and so that you can be the one getting the job. He's told you to work diligently as unto the Lord and not unto men. Work hard in the job that you've been given. Pray and ask God to lead you, and you can trust that he will. But as soon as I say that... (laughs) What we tend to think is, but then I don't know if it'll happen. How how do I know that I'll get the right job? How do I know that I'll end up in the right place? You're not going to know that anyway. You're not in control. You might as well just give that up now and cast it on him. And you can because it says he cares for you. You can say, God, I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to cast it on you. I'm going to do what you've told me to do, but I'm not going to try to do the things that I can't control. I'm not going to do what only you can do. I'm going to ask you to do that. And if it's different than what I think, You care for me. You care for me, and it's going to be okay. And the exaltation that I need isn't ultimately in this life anyway. It's the one that's coming. It's the one that he will give you when Jesus returns. As he concludes his letter, Peter says that this is the true grace of God in verse 12. Stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God. The true grace of God isn't necessarily that you're going to be exalted on this in this life. It isn't necessarily that you're going to get the slick job and you're going to get the perfect marriage and everything's going to work out for you. The true grace of God is something even better. You're going to get eternal glory in Christ. You will be exalted by God himself. if You'll come to him with nothing. That's the true grace of God. That's eternal. That's what lasts. And that's as good as it gets. Stand firm in that. As you're interacting with other people, whether you're in spiritual leadership or whether you're under spiritual leadership, forget yourself. It's not about you. As you're relating to God, as you see his mighty hand, forget yourself. It's about him. Life is about him. And you don't have to worry that you'll be left low. You will be exalted when Jesus returns.